Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and today I'm joined uh, by Henry Song, who's going to talk to us about the mortgage market, its evolution, and how uh, the vast differences within that market can lead to opportunities. So Henry, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Douglas. Happy to be here. Can you provide uh, some background on the formation of the mortgage market and how it came to be such a large component of the U.S. fixed income market? Yeah, so it's really in the early 80s where uh, the Wall Street basically figured out a way to uh, slice and dice your mortgage uh, pool, mortgage loan into uh, what they call collateralized mortgage obligations, CMO for short. Uh, during that process, we were able to parse out the risk and return profile of the of a t- what's typically a really long stream of cash flows. Uh, if you think about your mortgage that's 30 years, by parsing into different CMO tranches, some can be as short as half a year, one year. So this is better for them to be able to place the risk with different client client types. For example, a lot of times domestic banks will like to buy shorter tranches to better match their profile of their client base. The insurance company, on the other hand, especially life insurance companies, will want to own the really long duration CMOs to match their liability. So this CMO market has created a way for investors to own the risk differently. And because of that, the market really ballooned and really helped to uh, foster the growth of the mortgage market. So now if a bank were to originate a mortgage, they can now sell in the secondary market to a Wall Street dealer who would then pull a lot of these uh, mortgage pass-throughs, pull together, slice and dice them into CMOs and place with end investors. So the investor base just grew very rapidly uh, since the formation of CMO in the early 80s. So one of the things we've talked about in our one of our previous papers, which was about the changes to the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index over the last 10 years, uh, we focused in, in the mortgage space. And, and one of the areas that I found was most interesting is that the mortgage component of what is considered the standard fixed income index uh, includes only pass-throughs. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what's excluded and, you know, where are the opportunities that you can find because of that exclusion. Yeah, so none of the CMOs that I just mentioned are included because the CMOs are not primary issuance. So if you think about it, a bank would typically issue primary pass-through pools that come to the market, and then some dealer will aggregate a lot of these pools together and create different CMOs. And you can take a step further by aggregating different CMOs together and create a second iteration of these CMOs. Uh, So the possibility of CMOs are indefinite by definition. There are just so many QSIPs outstanding that the index is not tracking any of that. The problem with pass-throughs is you have this negative convexity profile. Uh, in simple terms, it just means prepayment risk because when rates start moving around, your cash flow, what you think is going to be a 30-year cash flow, all of a sudden shortens because someone refies into a two-year cash flow. So that's a risk that you have to manage against. By owning CMOs, a lot of times by owning the right structure at the right level, you can avoid a lot of that. So the CMOs allow you to customize, if you will, what you're looking at within the mortgage market and mitigate some of that risk that's associated, so that convexity risk of prepayment and extension that you see within the mortgage market. Absolutely, yep. 
from an issuer standpoint, taking a step back on a, on a much higher level, um, talk about some of the differences between agency and non-agency mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, so agency-backed sec- mortgage-backed securities are essentially loans originated, mortgage loans originated under the Fannie and Freddie guidelines. And then Fannie and Freddie basically puts their stamp approval on that. Uh, it, it's more complicated that was the mechanism behind it, but essentially any investor wants to own Fannie or Freddie bonds, they have the implicit government guarantee on it. It's not explicit. The only explicit guarantee is Jenny May. Uh, so Jenny, Fannie, and Freddie are considered the agency mortgage-backed securities, and that is a uh, dominant part of the mortgage market right now. Now, non-agency market is currently very small, but uh, prior to the financial crisis, it was actually a fairly sizable part of the market. So these are mortgage loans that's originated not according to Fannie Freddie standards. So one example would be if you own a, if you want, if you bought a 1.5 million dollar home that you need a mortgage for a million dollars, that million dollars would not fit under a Fannie or Freddie guideline because that loan size is way too big. Even though your LTV is lower than Fannie Freddie, uh, all the other metrics may suggest you're a better credit borrower, that doesn't matter. So Fannie Freddie's mission is to help provide housing for Americans. It's not to provide extravagant housing. So that's just one example of exclusion that the borrower needs to go to a non-agency mortgage lender. And Fannie and Freddie have uh, kind of a, a ceiling of the level of mortgages that they'll look at, all based on where you live. So California's ceiling is going to be a little bit different than Ohio's ceiling. That's correct. And what they would what they would endorse as as a agency mortgage. That's correct. Yep. And so you know the non agency. So so really the agency mortgage is uh, a conversation around an analysis around when am I going to get paid, whereas the non agency side of it is when and am I going to get paid. So there's much more of a credit. Uh, tilt on the non-agency side. So how, when you're looking at non-agency mortgages or, or more in the past when you looked at them, you know, what, what things are you looking at uh, when you're evaluating some of these non-agency mortgages? Yeah, that's correct. So if you think of a borrower that defaults on the mortgage, uh, if they stop making payments, if they were wrapped by a Fannie or Freddie, that would just come through. If they were to default, Fannie or Freddie would just pay the investor off at par so you get your money back at par. It will come a default will almost come through as a prepayment. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the non-agency mortgage-backed securities, if someone were to default, then you own the defaulted loan in that pool, and you have to work out of it, right? So you have to wait for the server to work out of it. And during the financial crisis, you have seen some loans still haven't been worked out to today, or it takes a very long time. Uh, so then you have to factor into the potential recovery of these loans. So if a loan defaults on 200000 housing market's doing great, maybe you get most of that money back. But in this case of during the financial crisis, when people start defaulting, the house price sold off by somewhere between 30 to 50%, depends on the zip code, then that's a different conversation. You have to analyze the, the risk. When we look at these loans, we really want to focus on the underwriter, how they are originating these. Who's the underwriter? What's their philosophy underwriting these loans that's not qualified for agency mortgage? What risk are you potentially being exposed to? And number two, we'll relay our thoughts on housing. So what happens if housing market were to sell off by 10, 20, 30 percent? 
what happens to these loans? Does it increase the likelihood of default? Uh, if it does, what's then your recovery is also lower. So kind of fact all of that in. We run different scenarios. We mo try to model out different scenarios and see what's come up with a base case. Uh, then we also come up with uh, what we call more, you know, our stress case, uh, which is uh, oftentimes we take what happened in 2008 as a guide and say, okay, if something like 2008 were to happen again, would this investment be made whole? So wanting to touch uh, on a little bit of what you said initially is that, you know, part of the due diligence is not just the underlying mortgages, the geographics, the demographics of those mortgages, but it's the underwriters themselves. You know, how do they look at the market? I think that's an interesting aspect that not everyone thinks about is that, and maybe people didn't think about it in, in 07, 06, leading up to 2008. And that's a very important part of what we do uh, when we're looking at analyzing some of these non-agency mortgages. So taking another shift, um, what are, because I get this question a lot, what are TBA mortgages? And how do they work and how do they differ from some of the other mortgages that we've been talking about? Yes, the TBA mortgage is strictly used for agency mortgages. So what happens is it's a derivatives market that you can go out there and say, hey, I want to buy some Fannie 3.5% coupon bond taking delivery in July. You don't know what bonds will be delivered to you, but you just want to own that risk. Uh, you can sell out at any time. You don't have to take fiscal delivery. You could, but oftentimes... They want exposure to Fannie three and a half paid coupon mortgage-backed securities, and they want to have exposure to that prepayment speed profile. And then they can roll them over a month, say, okay, I don't want to take delivery in July. I'm going to pay to take delivery in August. So it's a quick way of getting mortgage exposure. So that's a main reason why a lot of people utilize that. And oftentimes managers would uh, uh, analyze a different coupon stack so they could have a view on 3.5% Fannie Mae versus 3% Fannie Mae, how the prepayment could differ, and that could result in uh, potential basis moves, and you know you can profit it that way. So it's a very top-down view on the mortgage market in aggregate, because mm -hmm. you're not looking at a specific pool of mortgages, you're looking at all of the Fannie 3.5s together. And just wanting to get exposure to that part of the market. Right. Okay. Um, and last question for you, uh, and this, this gets to kind of what we look at when we're looking for relative value. How can an allocation of mortgages outside of the benchmarks, what we talked about, CMOs, non-agency mortgages, how can that be beneficial to a portfolio relative to the index and to the universe? Yeah, so to the index, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you have a lot of negative convexity by owning the path-throughs outright. Only CMOs can greatly reduce your negative convexity profile of your overall mortgage book. And so that, that's one of the biggest benefit. And number two, oftentimes because the CMO market is smaller with fewer investors involved, mostly because the passive funds are not really trafficking in the CMO market. So there creates opportunities. For example, historically, the banks really favor the front end of the, mortgage, the CMO and the insurance company really wanted the back end of it. But in the intermediate part of it, there's a not a good natural buyer, and that's oftentimes where money managers will come in. From an arbitrage perspective, if the Wall Street bank or dealer were to create uh, three CMOs, call them front, middle, and back, they sell the front and the back to these natural buyers at a pretty good premium, they could afford to sell the mi middle part at a 
discount, and it will still make a pretty good profit on creating the CMO. So that that's where like where you can take advantage of that, where you only uh, AAA quality agency CMO increase your convexity profile and pick up spread versus uh, a more generic path through. And definitely a, a bottom up process like this is not necessarily applicable to managers that are 100 billion, 200 billion in fixed income because the size isn't there. And that's where we talk about capacity and capacity discipline and how important that is. Yep, that, that's correct. And it's also harder for managers that want to get in and out of positions very quickly. Uh, CMO market is very liquid, but it's less liquid than the pass-through market. So if your goal is to do a lot of sector rotation, then the CMO market may not be the most efficient way of doing that. You are better doing it in the TBA market or just a more generic pass-through market where you can kind of move bonds around without incurring too much transaction costs. Well, Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this was helpful to everyone listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for having me. materials for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.